America's post-Christian, I don't know if you realize it or not, but it is. There's a lot of evidence to prove this statement. Church attendance has been steadily declining for 20 years. Thousands, perhaps even, according to some studies, tens of thousands of churches closed in North America each year. And post-pandemic, people are returning to church like churches expected. I remember pastors a year ago were like, man, when this thing's over, churches are going to be full of people. People are going to come flooding back. And I've not only seen people leaving churches, but leaders leaving churches, ministers leaving churches. There's pastors that I listen to and I read their books and I love who are like, yeah, I just can't do this anymore. I'm done. David Kinnaman, the president of the Warner Group, who does research um, on religion throughout North America, was recently interviewed on NPR, and he said this, in the long run, I think we'll look back at this pandemic as a fundamental change to the way Americans attend church. It's a catalyst that has made what's already been happening for the last 20 years happen even faster. America is post-Christian. More and more people identify as having no religious affiliation, and your average person in the U.S. no longer has a worldview that we would call Christian. They don't have a common framework that at one time people in America just had. We thought alike, even if we didn't all worship the same way. Now people have a very different way of understanding their world, and the church seems out of touch. I see churches who have a variety of responses, like, what do we do with this reality? What do we do now that there is a decline of Christianity in the West? And I think some churches are in denial, and some are playing defense, and some just seem utterly defeated. The churches who are in denial, um, either because of their generational makeup, older generations are still attending church pretty faithfully, or their geographical makeup, or their cultural makeup, uh, have been insulated to some degree from the changing tide of church attendance and decline of Christianity. And so sometimes when they hear these stats, I remember a few years ago I had a chance to speak to some pastors, several hundred, at an event, I was on a Q&A panel, and I was just talking about like where I thought church was headed, this was before the pandemic, and I was like, hey, you've got to have stuff online, you've got to start reaching younger generations, you've got to start thinking differently. I remember afterwards some pastors came up to me and they were like, I've got a church full of 60-year-olds and older who are faithfully given and attending, and we're good. And I'm like, yeah, but what's going to happen to the pastor from the factory? Some churches are just in denial, and some are playing defense. Some churches see the impending disaster, and they're circling their wagons. They're like, we need to pull our resources in. We need to think more inwardly. We need to build a strong wall to separate the world from ourselves. We need to be safe and here in our huddle. The only problem with that is the mission that Jesus gave the church was not to keep the world out of the church. It was for the church to get into the world. And some churches are just defeated. Some seem to change and simply give up. I live a block from Ardmore First Baptist Church, which uh, was sold to a developer in 2011. The church building had been erected in 1923. However, the congregation had dwindled to a handful of older adults, and they decided... It's just impossible to continue. We're going to have to close and sell the building. I did some research when I moved into the neighborhood. I want to know what happened to the church. How did it become apartments? This was a quote from one of the leaders when they sold the building. Young adults and families no longer are interested in church. It is impossible to reach them. They became convinced that it was impossible, and they gave up their building, and it's now an apartment complex. They forgot that the church was founded on the impossible. 
a dead man came back to life. Now, I'm going to suggest a fourth response to America being post-Christian. And that fourth response is change. I think the church has to change. The way we do church has to change. Culture has changed, but the way we do church many times still mirrors a model that worked in a culture long since dead. I think this is the moment that, that the church has to know who they are, what really matters, and they need to be bold and take a stand about what really matters, about the right thing. Boldness, courage in the face of an opposing and contrary culture was a key ingredient in the success of the early church. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the early church in the book of Acts, and we've been reading about like, what kind of mindsets did the early church have that we can parallel, that we can copy, that we can uh, use today as we dream and long about being a future church, a church that's going to survive and thrive in the future. And today we're continuing our series in Acts chapter 4. We're going to start reading in verse 13. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John, and they realized that these were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed. They recognized that these were men who had been with Jesus. And since they saw the men who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition to them. And after they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, what should we do with these men? For it's obvious that a sign has been done through them. It's clear to everyone living in Jerusalem. We can't deny it. But so that they do not spread any further among the people this teaching, but threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. They won't even say the name of Jesus. They just say, in this name again. So they called for them, and they ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Then Peter and John answered them, You decide whether it's right in the sight of God for us to speak to you rather than to God, whether we should do what you said or whether we should do what God says. For we're unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them, because all the people were giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. This is a continuation of our story we covered online last week. Peter and John go into the temple and they heal this man in the lane, and they end up being arrested because they took this opportunity to start talking about Jesus. And they said, hey, Jesus, who you killed, he came back to life. And the religious leaders didn't like that, so they arrested him, put him in to this religious trial. Now, Peter and John were uneducated, ordinary men who were marked by boldness. The Greek word translated boldness here is parousia, which means to speak openly, to speak with freedom. It's usually translated as confidence, although sometimes it's translated as boldness or courage. Peter and John and the early church were marked by this peculiar confidence that stunned their culture. The boldness of the early church caught the attention of the first century culture. And I think boldness about the right things today could catch the attention of our culture too. Now, they weren't confident because culture was worthless. They were like, we're in the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire is a Christian empire, and so we, they've got our back. You know, this is a safe place for us to express our beliefs. They weren't like, well, we're in the Jewish culture, and that's a very pro-Jesus culture, so we're safe here to present our beliefs. They were confident despite culture, not because culture was for them. The Roman Empire was against them. 
the religious leaders were against them. The rabbi had just been executed. They should have been terrified that they might be the next ones to get killed, but they weren't. Um, you probably heard the old saying, cut off the head of the snake and the body will fall. You know, the body will follow. Um, somehow they had cut off the head and the body had given birth to thousands of little girls. When I first moved to the mainland, this area that we live in and work in and call home and we worship in, I thought everyone here was a brilliant atheist just waiting to dismantle my belief. Anybody I talked to, I was like, man, this is going to be genius. And they're going to have these super well thought out arguments and be able to just dismantle everything I believe. I was terrified and intimidated by the education here. I mean, there's more PhDs within a few mile radius of where we meet here than almost anywhere else in the country. It's crazy if you look at uh, how much education people have here. The, the average person here has a master's degree or higher within a three mile radius. There is so much money and influence all around me. I was so intimidated. I remember the first time I was asked to sit on a community board in this community. Um, we, our church had been doing some work in the community, and so people had noticed our work, and they said, hey, we don't believe anything like you, but you're doing good here. Will you come and sit on this board? And um, I was like, sure, yeah, I'll do that. And I sat down on this board next to doctors and lawyers and architects and professionals and educators at universities around here, people who lived in million-dollar homes and had gone to Princeton and Yale, and I was like, I do not belong here. I went to a small Bible college and then seminary in the middle of nowhere in Tennessee. Um, I remember the first time I cast a dissenting vote, and some of these rich and powerful people came around me and told me I needed to get in line, and I wasn't intimidated. One of my mentors told me, I remember talking to him, and I was like, I don't know if I can live here on the main line, let alone serve on the main line, start a church on the main line, the rich and powerful and influential people here. I'm intimidated. And here's what he told me. The God of the universe called you to walk around your neighborhood with a holy providence that you're here as a special agent. You're James Bond in your workplace. <laughs> yeah, you're James Bond in your neighborhood. You're James Bond in your community, in this city. You're not just an ordinary person. If you're a follower, a student of Jesus' way of life, he has positioned you as a special agent. Walk around with the same confidence that Daniel Craig walks into a room of people with guns and somehow walks out of it, right? And uh, so sometimes I walk into a situation where, as Alex, I feel naturally intimidated, and I remind myself, I'm not sure about it. I'm here as a special agent of the high king of heaven. I'm here on his assignment and with his backing. Yes, there are rich and powerful people here, but a higher power than money or influence has sent me. I wasn't here because I wanted to be. I was here because I'm on assignment from the high king of heaven who ultimately owns everything, which is more than they own. That's more than Amazon owns. Yes. More than Google owns. Yes. More than Apple owns. What am I here? In 2 Corinthians 5.20, it says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. It says, Though God were making his appeal to people through us, we implore people on Christ's behalf, be reconciled, be restored to God. When you walk around, you walk around as the representation of God to people. 
We should walk around our communities, our workplaces, and our neighborhoods with the holy confidence that God is with us, and He is for us, and you know what? If somebody kills us, He's going to bring us back from the dead. God has strategically placed us for His kingdom purposes in key locations to encounter people who need His good news. Good news that they can be redeemed and restored. We are bold because this isn't our message or our mission. We're working for God. We're working with God. We're simply following orders. If somebody doesn't like what we say, what we believe, what we do, take it up with them. If the world comes against us, God's got our back. Now, that confidence is not permission to be able. I see a lot of Christians who, quite honestly, they act belligerent and not bold. This means we can be confident that death cannot stop us because it couldn't stop the one whose message we carry. But it doesn't mean we get to be belligerent and vicious and cruel. Many times church members seem to have no problem being belligerent on social media. Um, I love Twitter. I'm on Twitter several times a day. I put my thoughts out there. Many times I'm brainstorming a sermon on Twitter, and then I pull those tweets together into a message. Uh, something comes to me as I'm praying or as I'm working here at the Art Center. I tweet it out real fast so I can later on uh, pull it back up and remember it. But it is amazing on Twitter how some Christians will say something and other Christians will destroy them. They won't attack their idea. They will attack the person. This is not permission to be blamed. Sometimes someone who's not a believer or an atheist or an agnostic or even a seeker or a searcher and Christians will tear them down because they have honest questions. That's not boldness. Many times when we don't have to look someone in the eye and we're safely behind our keyboards, we say terrible things in the name of Jesus. And that's not the kind of boldness we're talking about. Our modern Western church seems pretty belligerent at rallies and protests and online. But Peter and John weren't marked for being belligerent, arrogant jerks. They were marked by being confident about what they had seen and heard. They were confident about Jesus, confident that he had come back from the dead. And that reality changed everything about their world and their lives. Boldness doesn't mean we shove our beliefs down someone's throat. It means whether we talk or not isn't determined by fear. Whether or not we say anything not determined by fear. Confidence doesn't mean we raise a fist to culture and we say, we're going to fight them, they're so wrong. But instead, we open our hands as an invitation because we know this is the best way to live. We're not trying to sell them something. We're trying to invite them into the best thing that we've ever found. We've tasted the abundant life of living and loving like Jesus, and we're confident that being his apprentice is the greatest human life anyone can live, and we want other people to enjoy. But I think if we're honest, we're a lot more confident about our political affiliations than we are about Jesus. We're a lot more confident about our sports teams than we are about Jesus. Just look at this guy. He's a lot more confident about his sports teams. He's a lot more passionate about his sports teams than honestly I am about Jesus. Just look at that action. This guy would die for Philly sports. I don't know if I'm as passionate about Jesus as this guy is about Philly sports. We're a lot more confident about our careers than we are about Jesus. Western Christians tend to be bold about things they should be timid about and timid about things they should be bold about. 
we're more likely to stand up and shout that we're a Republican or a Democrat than we are willing to stand up and shout that we're Redeemers. More, more, we are more willing to stand up and shout that we're the Phils or the Flyers than we are to shout that we're Redeemers. We're a lot more willing to shout about a professional area of expertise than we are about Jesus. Is it any wonder no one wants to listen to what the church has to say? When we spend all our time being loud about things that don't matter, when we actually talk about things that do, don't deserve what we say. When you're loud about the things that don't matter, people won't listen when you talk about the things that really do matter. Because at the end of the day, I don't think most of us are confident about Jesus at all. We're hedging a bet and we hope that Jesus will pay off. We're like, you know, I don't know, I'm sure what's going to happen when I die, and I really hope Jesus pays off. And so, you know, we, we put a little bet on Jesus. If Horizon is going to be a future church, a church that survives and thrives, we have to be convinced that Jesus is the real deal. That he's really who he said he was. That he came back from the dead. And that his life, his way of life that he invites us into, really works. That he's worth putting our total confidence in. Now, I'm so grateful for those of you who have invited friends and brought friends and family members to Horizon. That's incredibly humbling because it means you love it enough to share. Um, but I think about when I invite my friends and my family, I'm usually inviting people who are open to religion, who have talked about God. Maybe they used to attend church or they're looking for one. But most of the people that you and I work with are not people who talk about religion or are open to religion or talk about Jesus. Most of the people we encounter don't fit that category, and I tend to be really quiet to those people about how I feel about Jesus. The people who aren't interest, interested in religion, who aren't looking for God, many of them don't think there even is a God, and many times I'm not confident enough to talk to those people about Jesus. I try to find people who already think like I do, and then I talk to them. They're already humans. I try to find people who already look like me and act like me, and I invite them because the risk is low. The chance of rejection is low. The early church was marked by a confidence. They would stare down risk and high rejection because they were so certain that Jesus was the real deal. No risk assessment mattered. My nephew here is here from Georgia. He is a kid who never thinks about the risk assessment. He's like, a normal person would be like, I can get hurt doing this, not red. He just jumps off. He's just like, I'm just going for it. He has a confidence that somehow I'm going to make it through this thing. Hmm. Many times, red lives his life a lot more confident in his ability to survive things that I'm like, what are you doing? That's dangerous. Than I do my Christian life. I live a fearful. I'm always doing a Christian system. This could go bad. This could go south. I could ruin this. I could mess this up. As if it all depended on me instead of on this year. How many times have I said someone's no for them, so I didn't even ask them? I'm like, well, they're not interested in religion. I just won't even ask them because it's going to be no anyway, right? How many times have we self-sabotaged ourselves because we lack confidence? Sometimes I don't give 100%. This is just my confession here to you. Sometimes I don't give 100% in my ministry or in my life or in my spiritual uh because I'm afraid if I gave my best and it failed, I couldn't get up again. I'd be totally defeated. Here's a question that I think we have to ask ourselves. Are we confident that Jesus is worth failing for? See, most of the time I act like he's not. He's worth winning for. He's worth succeeding for. But failing, no, I don't think that. 
The early church thought Jesus was worth failing for, being rejected for, and dying for. How many times have we failed because we simply didn't have a little more confidence, not in ourselves, but in Jesus? In the Harry Potter movies, there's this potion called liquid luck. And when you take it, you just have really good luck. In fact, it actually just gives you a lot of confidence, and so you're naturally successful as a result. Now, Harry's friend is trying out for their magical soccer team, and he's nervous. So Harry acts like he gives Ron some of this liquid luck in his coffee. And so Ron goes out to the tryouts for the team, and he does amazing because he thinks he has this liquid luck. He has this natural confidence. And at the end, Harry tells him, oh, I didn't actually put any in your coffee at all. You just needed someone to think you could do it. You just needed to think you could. You had the confidence. There's an episode of The Simpsons where Homer, who usually is kind of this bum that everybody mistreats and thinks is a nobody, tries a miracle cure for baldness and grows a full head of hair. And soon he gets promoted. The boss is like, who is this amazing striking man? Let's put him in charge of a section, you know? And people are inviting him to speak at events. And uh, at the end, he's like, it's all about the hair, it's all about the hair. And his assistant says, no, you're confident now. People like confidence. It's amazing what you can do when you're confident. Nothing changed for Ron or Homer except how they saw themselves. How do we see ourselves? Do we see ourselves like God sees us? God looks at you and says, you're the bride of Christ. You're worth dying for. You're my ambassadors. You're my siblings. You're my friends. You're sons and daughters of the high king of heaven. You have been bought with a price. You are valuable. You are loved, you are wanted, you are loved. I was reading what a psychologist said about the importance of confidence. When we're confident, we're more likely to move forward with people and opportunities and not back away from them. If things don't work out at first, confidence helps us try again. It's the opposite when confidence is low. People who are low in confidence might be less likely to try new things or to reach out to new people. If they fail at something the first time, they're less likely to try again. A lack of confidence can hold people back from reaching their full potential. And I believe a lack of confidence in who Jesus is and what he says about us will hold a church back from reaching their full potential. If we want to be a church, a future church, we need to be a confident church. A confident church looks to the future with anticipation and hope, not fear and dread, because Jesus is still raising dead things to life. He's still doing miracles. He's still doing the impossible. Most churches live in a circle of restricted potential drawn by their own lack of confidence in who Jesus is and how we feel. This lack of confidence is not about culture or their abilities, but it's really about how they see the character and nature of God. They don't think God will come through for them. They think they're on their own and they don't measure up to the task before them. They can do it while culture looks for them and they have a lot of resources and people at their back, but they don't know if they can do it now that it's just God. Future churches will be bold because they will confidently believe that dead man came back to life. And because of that, anything is possible. All bets are off. Anything could happen. If I'm honest, I think Verizon has stopped being bold because I've stopped being bold. See, when I started this thing, we had nothing to lose and everything to gain, so all I had was risk, right? I mean, I risked everything, um, because that's what you do at the beginning, when you start with nothing but hope and a prayer. But now, as I start to have a few people, and I start to have places to meet, and we start to have things, I, I, I feel myself 
feeling like I have something to lose and making safer and safer decisions, decisions that are based around fear, not around the confidence that dead men come back to them. Decisions marked by fear and confidence. The early church was marked by ordinary, uneducated people who had been with Jesus and showed. The culture noticed. They're like, they've been with somebody and it impacted them. Our modern churches are filled with remarkable and famous and talented people who are educated, but there's no sign that they've been with Jesus. We must fix our minds and our bodies, our whole beings on Jesus. In the words of Dallas Willard, we must hold Jesus with as much fullness as we can ever before us. We won't be confident to act on behalf of Jesus, to take his good news to people who need good news, until we spend time sitting in the presence Jesus, becoming confident about who he is, how good he is, and how much he has in fact. So many times I rush through my prayers and I rob myself of confidence. So often we quickly check off our scripture reading and we rob ourselves of confidence. Too often we avoid the community of other disciples and we rob ourselves of confidence. Peter and John asked the religious court, is it, should we listen to God who tells us to share about what we've seen and experienced? Or should we listen to our culture? Should we listen to you who tells us to be quiet and keep it to ourselves? And I think that same question hangs before a church that wants to be a future church and a post-Christian culture. Are we going to listen to God? Or are we going to listen to the culture? Are we going to be quiet? Are we going to speak up? Are we going to be led by fear or confidence that God is with us? See, the early church had this profound sense that God knew what he was doing. That he was redeeming the worst decisions of people and the worst parts of culture to accomplish his objective. And when faced with persecution and resistance from culture, they didn't hide or pray for things to be easier. They prayed for boldness. Look down at Acts chapter 4, verse 29 through 30. This is what they prayed after they were released. They gathered the other believers. Verse 29, and now, Lord, look at their threats and give your servant bold, your servant's boldness to speak your word. While you stretch out your hand to heal and do signs and wonders performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the word of God boldly. Today, I think you should pray like the early church did for boldness, not to be jerks. Not to be arrogant a-holes, but to speak up about what actually matters Jesus. To not be led by fear, but have a confidence that he is with us and for us. So I want to end today very simply. I'm going to lead us in a prayer asking for boldness. To, I hope that you'll commit with me to spend time with Jesus until the same fire he had light in our hearts. Because when the religious leaders saw Peter and John, they were like, Acting, they're acting just like Jesus. Do we act just like Jesus? Do we know him well enough? Do we spend enough time holding him ever before our hearts and our lives that we live and love like him? I believe that churches that survive and thrive in the future will be courageously confident churches. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know that we are in a country that no longer has a foundation of Christianity. We could debate whether it ever actually did. But there was a time when it certainly had at least a Christian atmosphere about it. 
we said Christian things that people have basic beliefs that we could build off. But now, the majority of the people in this country don't even know basic things about it. In fact, there's many times where it can be a detriment to be bold and outspoken about the fact that you follow Jesus, that you follow a 2,000 year old rabbi's teachings about how to live life, that you believe dead men came back to life. Uh, many times you're laughed at, you're scorned at, or at least looked over, uh, you're looked at from the side of like, oh man, they're, they're out of touch with reality. God, today, I pray for Horizon, you will fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you'll give us boldness. That we won't be afraid to talk about who you are and what we've seen you do. This isn't a call to fight culture, we also need culture. This is